Hello and welcome to The Dissonance of Things, a monthly podcast on all things good and rotten in international politics. I'm your host, Charmaine Chua, and with me today are... Lale Khalili, I'm Professor of Politics at SOAS, and my current research is on the emergence of maritime uh, transport infrastructure and ports uh, Arabian Peninsula. I'm Deb Cowan, I teach at the University of Toronto in the Department of Geography and Planning, and my work is largely on the politics of logistics and infrastructure. Great, welcome everyone, and thanks so much for being here. A recording of this podcast can be found at thedisorderofthings.com, where you can find all our other podcasts, as well as the very best in international relations blogging. So today we're talking about the rise of logistics. What is logistics? Why does it matter? And how does it shape our world in ways that have often gone unnoticed in international relations and international politics in general? In many parts of the world, it has become commonplace to order a book or household supplies or a sofa online and take for granted that they will arrive at our doorsteps less than a week after we click on the checkout button. But the innovations that have made such rapid deliveries possible have required some quite radical shifts in the calculative and spatial ordering of the global supply chain. In the past five decades or so, we have witnessed the rapid expansion of just-in-time manufacturing systems, containerization, predictive algorithms, and massive infrastructural projects that furnish the physical networks for trade, all of which have inserted themselves into our daily lives with increasing ubiquity. Just think, for example, about how trucking and parcel delivery is now the most common occupation in the United States, or how sociometric sensing technologies monitor the behaviors and emotions of both blue and white-collar laborers, extending logistical technologies into the management and measurement of affect. In all these and many other ways, logistics has become not simply an apolitical science of goods movement, but a global process of geopolitical and geoeconomic redefinition. So how did logistics come to such a position of prominence in the functioning of the global economy? Where did this idea come from? And when did this all happen? Today, we speak to two scholars who work on the question of how logistics has come to be so crucial economically, politically, and socially to the functioning of global capitalism. So Deborah, Lale, my first question to you is, what exactly is logistics? How might we define it? Um, and also, what brought you to think about this as a subject of your research? So logistics is, the, in a sense, the management of the circulation of materials and ideas through the supply chain. And I would include very much the military as well as the corporate supply chain. And I think it's important to talk about because logistics has kind of quietly become one of the central disciplines organizing imperialism. Deb's description is um, absolutely brilliant. Um, I think metaphorically, when I'm thinking about logistics, I think of it as the kind of a sinew that holds the bones together, or as a kind of a cartilage that that facilitates them. And, and I've injured my knee, so I'm particularly aware of the ways in which the cartilage is necessary for the proper functioning of the bones together, for the joints to meet each other. And in some senses, that metaphor, without taking it too far, is precisely how logistics works. It's, it's the thing that we don't think about because we are so much more focused on the bones and the and the infrastructures rather than on the on the on the stuff that circulates around them and keeps things together and keeps things interconnected and I think Deb's extraordinary work, her amazing book and the articles she's written around it, in some ways actually completely clarifies the ways in which this uh, circulation of goods, ideas, 
um, and uh, military functionalities, etc., uh, through the, the kind of capillaries of, of world trade um, and world military movements is precisely that thing that is only now becoming more visible to critical scholars, where up to now, the, the vast majority of the work that has been produced on it has been um, in departments which are actually trying to manage, plan, facilitate the actual work of logistics rather than try to reflect on the work that it does in politics or sociology or in, uh, in, in organizing uh, labor or production or circulation. So I want to pick up on this, um, on the military functions that you've both talked about, the military and imperial functions that you've both talked about. But before I do that, would you want to reflect for a little bit about what brought you to think about logistics as the subject of your research? What first sort of enfolded you into wanting to think about it as a sort of political object? Um, sure. In some ways, it's there's a very general reason why I, I became interested in logistics. And in some ways, it was very specific. So the general is I think I'm always drawn to, to questions and topics that are a little seemingly a little obscure and that are not already treated as political. And in this case, I think logistics is one of the most kind of technocratic fields that I've ever encountered in terms of both the nature of the conversation, who's participating in it, um, where it's held, whether it's, you know, that there's very, there has been historically, and, and, and I think it's only changed recently with the work of people like you and Lale and others, the wonderful work that's been done over the last few years that's really asking different questions. But I think until recently, the whole conversation about logistics and supply chain management has been so incredibly technocratic and hosted really only either in military contexts or in business management schools. And so the, the profoundly political nature of circulation and global trade has been um, kind of tucked away and, and made something kind of technical. So that, that in itself drew me to the field to think about, well, what kind of conversation could we have about this work that seems to be doing so much work in the world? Uh, and so that was the kind of broad interest that I had in the field was literally trying to figure out how it is that this conversation hasn't been uh, one that was more open to contestation and critique. And then there was this very specific kind of set of events that piqued my interest and that I couldn't really sh shake once I'd encountered, which was trying to figure out issues of border security in the post-2001 period and this kind of crisis that had emerged in North America in response to 2001 and the border closures that had accompanied September 11th, and the border closures that were particularly acute in the auto industry, the just-in-time auto supply industry that is a really a transnational industry um, where auto parts are crossing the U.S. border into Mexico, um, well, from Mexico into the United States and from Canada into the United States in a very fast-paced kind of way. And so the border closures created a crisis in this crucial industry. And the conversation that started to emerge among um, both government and um, think tank folks who are interested in border security was actually one where the concern that they had, the supply chain folks had, was that border security was actually becoming a threat to the security of supply chains. And so there was this very strange conversation that I was um, hearing about where national security of the kind of traditional bordering kind, um, the territorial form, was 
being increasingly understood as a threat to national security insofar as global trade was increasingly thought about as a kind of crucial dimension of national security. So we had this really strange moment where national security was a threat to national security. And I thought this was, this was so bizarre and didn't really make sense and without a lot more context. So I started to think about how did we get to this place and what does it mean? It sounds really Thanks. exciting the way you talk about it, Deb, because, um, because, because an element of me going into um, my own specific sort of corner of the field has to do with the fact that also I felt that it was something not only all, uh, obscure and technocratic and all of that, but also something that the boys did. Yes, and I, <laughs> definitely. And there's, there's something very kind of very seductive about a girl going into the, the, the fields which the boys often monopolize and, uh, and, and talking about subjects which are supposed to be subjects that, um, that, that are uh, gendered masculine in, in the academy. There has always been an element of that in all the work that I have done. But in this case, in particular, this, um, th this was one of the attractions. And of course, what was also very attractive about it was that the only other person that I could think of at the time that I started looking at this, um, there, there have subsequently been others, but the only other person that I could think of that was working on this in any kind of an exciting and intellectually challenging way was you, Deb. And so when I started thinking about the project, my pole star was your work, and here were you, you know, this, uh, this uh, amazing woman working on subjects I was interested in. Uh, in a field which is very often lies by men and, as I said, gendered masculine. And then, of course, shortly thereafter, I met Charmaine. And so, so there was a kind of a, there, there was a sense of conquering, and I'm going to use that military language, conquering a, a field or a domain to, to which we weren't supposed to be welcome. But, but there were more intellectual reasons. Coming off of my previous counterinsurgency project, I kept running into, particularly in either interviews with military personnel or in reading military documents, was that so much of what is written critically about war making and US military is often concerned with the sexy bloody stuff, with, with, with the tip of the spear, with the killings, with the mercenaries, with the, with the militaries. With, in fact, my own work has been interested in the incarceration and the torture and all the things that appear on the news. And of course, what becomes clear once you actually delve into the primary materials that are not intended really as their first function for the critical gaze of the scholars, but rather for the workings of the military itself, is that there's an entirely massive logistical infrastructure without which the sexy, bloody tip of the spear stuff wouldn't get to be where it ends up being. And once I started looking into that, that it became clear to me that so much of I, what I took for granted as being wholly commercial, for example, within the Arabian Peninsula, uh, ports or emergence of these massive logistics firms or the emergence of uh, enormous warehousing, uh, owed a great deal, actually, to the U.S.'s constant and seemingly increasing interest in putting its forces into the region or drawing them out of there, which, of course, requires a certain degree, a vast degree of logistical infrastructure. So that's how I actually came to the interest that I had into the field. Can I just um, kind of come back on that? Because I think um, there's so much that Lale said that provokes me to think more about it. First of all, just the generosity of her spirit, which, you know, um, Lale's mentioned that my work has been useful to her. But you know, I think when you're working on topics where there hasn't been a lot of attention, like Lale said, like the, the, the few people that might be working on it signal to you whether you're doing something that makes sense to you, um, knowing that Lale 
was working on these questions certainly excited me and made me feel like I wanted to push further. And then, of course, Charmaine's emerging work on this field as well. So I wanted to just like note that, that I think the company has been amazing and has really changed the, the kind of tenor of scholarship in this area. But I also wanted to just come in on this question of the kind of banality of the topic itself. And Lale was talking about the sort of difference in studying the kind of battlefield or the sexy, dramatic, um, spectacular forms of violence or war making. Um, and I think in some ways, this is something constant across all my work is my interest in the kind of banal backroom kind of questions. And um, so even when I was working on um, my last project, which was really specifically on military recruitment, citizenship and welfare, you know, it was things like, like, how do they get food to soldiers and what are the politics around the kind of exchange for military work? That the very banal kind of questions of how war making actually happens um, and how um, citizenship and labor is kind of organized so all the kind of very backroom sort of things have always been of interest. And I think this broad question of how, the how of the political and the how of violence and the how of resistance has been really of, of interest to me across everything I've been involved in, um, in terms of my scholarship and my, my political work. And I think that's, you know, it's relevant in the sense that logistics is really a how question, like how to get things where and how to organize yes. and how to supply. And it's all these how questions, not these seemingly sexier questions of strategy or tactics. I mean, it is quite funny that even the military people always begin with, oh, logistics is boring, but then it's the amateurs who do strategy and tactics and it's the professionals who do the logistics. Yeah. And of course, when you start reading military histories, for example, what you run into is that the, the proper military historians, the ones who know this stuff, when they're talking about Napoleon, they're not talking about his set piece battles. They're talking about the fact that Napoleon, for example, was one of the most successful military generals of the 19th century, precisely because of his ability to provide support for his um, armies even when they're when they were tethered halfway across Europe and I think that that also was part of what made me really want to delve into this because in some senses again we are fed a kind of a narrative which is a very uh, heroic narrative of battles and whatnot and what happens behind the scenes uh, is something that is uh, much more perhaps unsexy but which matters so much more but for me there was also another reason and I think that again became clear reading Deb's book was it seems that to focus on this element of the back room and the banal of military functioning also brings in political economy in a way that so much else doesn't allow. And I think that that, Charmaine, is actually, I want you to tell us a little bit about, because I think your, your work is focused on this very beautiful, incisive, critical reading of the ways in which the political economy of logistics works, which uh, is quite exciting to hear about as well, to, to sort of, you know, to, to, to know where the field is going in some senses. So I think the way that Deb framed the question of logistics around the, the question of how things are moved becomes central to the processes of both global capital and global imperialism has sort of been a really foundational uh, insight. And I think about how questions from the specific point of political ethnography, I think part of why logistics tends to be, tends to have remained so much out of sight is that uh, it's hidden behind the walls of ports and within warehouses spaces which most regular citizens don't have much insight into. But the fact that logistics is so invisible is precisely part of the process of political obfuscation. And so 
Part of my work questions what the politics of this invisibility do. Why is logistics kept so much out of sight? And one of the ways that I think about this is that we tend to fetishize the sort of containerization of goods or we fetishize the container itself as this kind of aesthetic object that breeds a lot of fascination about industry. But in fact, in logistical management systems, workers are often kept very much out of sight, right? And what we often find in, in logistics is that we don't see the workers behind the places and the products, the workers whose blood is congealed in those places and products. So I try to think about how workers themselves are very much a key part of what constitutes the realm of logistics. And I do this through tracing the sort of mundane but banal everyday practices of logistical work on container ships and imports. So I, I think about logistics workers and the ways in which their bodies are inscribed into the supply chain to precisely make these moments of labor visible within what we think of as logistics. But that also, I think, sorry, go ahead. Love, go I was on. actually, can I jump in on that? Because I think one of the things that's really exciting about the project that you're doing is, um, other than Deb's work, which is extremely exciting and urgent and and, and and as I said, completely and totally shapes how I'm thinking. The other person whose work has been really very, very significantly influential on the way um, I think about my project, not only as a research project, but as a moral and political one, has been the work of Alan Sekula, the, the painter and theorist, the photography. And one of the things that is really amazing in his work is that unlike a lot of other people who do photograph or make films about these logistical spaces, he doesn't seem to be completely obsessed with the sort of the aesthetics of the large objects, with the, with the real beautiful technological sublime, which is extremely seductive in these spaces. And one of the things that he insists on in his work or he insisted on in his work was um, was was the presence of human bodies, the workers, but also the marginalized people who live in the interstices of these um, logistical spaces. And I think that it, what, the project that you're working on, Charmaine, really beautifully uh, adds a kind of a depth and dimension to the ways in which secular thought through these logistical spaces as places which needed to be humanized by making visible the persons, the bodies, the humans that move through it. So that's very exciting, actually. Thanks, Lily. I was just going to say absolutely, and I think that connects us in some ways very directly to the long imperial and colonial histories of logistics where the whole question of bodies, you know, and human humanity is uh, so acute. So, so Deb, in your book, um, you trace the history of logistics starting roughly around the 1960s, and you you argue that logistics is a fundamentally military enterprise as well. And one of the things you say is that the logistical complexity of mobilization meant that the success and failure of military campaigns came to rely um, as much, if not more, on logistics than on strategy itself. I wanted to ask both of you if you could um, talk a little bit about the military history of logistics, and if you could give us specific examples of the way in which the military and political economic um, aspects of logistics are connected. But then if you could also, um, after that, talk about how logistics then moves into the corporate world of management and what this means. I certainly focus in my book more on the period since the 1950s and 60s, for sure, and that fits with what you said. Um, but I, at the same time, I would, I would definitely want to extend our lens much further back in time. Um, you know, Stefano Harney has suggested that the first major modern kind of exercise of logistics was the slave trade. And 
I just returned from seeing a show a few weeks ago, an incredible installation by Kent Monkman, who's a Canadian, uh, well, two-spirited in, uh, Indigenous artist. And his, his whole project, I would say, was this incredibly queer critique of the logistics of North American settler colonialism by looking specifically at the, the slaughter of the buffalo as a way of starving Indigenous peoples, but then also the use of the bones of the buffalo, which were sent back to Europe and made into bone china. Um, and he yeah. uses, he does this whole kind of amazing engagement with both the slaughter of the buffalo, but also the circulation of their bones as a commodity that becomes key in this new form of, you know, dinnerware <laughs> and really puts the kind of stakes of uh, genocide through a kind of logistics of starvation, but that's also part of a supply chain of colonial trade um, right at the center of this kind of history. So I would, I would certainly want to think about the long, long histories of logistics as an explicitly imperial form. And, and I try and signal that in, in the book, but my focus is definitely on a much more recent transformations. Um, I mean, I, I, I think logistics has, has been a, a, a crucial part of military practice and, and the kind of third art of, of warfare for hundreds, if not thousands of years. Um, but what I think folks like Manuel Delanda and a lot of, of military historians or a few military historians have traced is the ways in which the increasingly technical and complex nature of warfare itself with the rise of modern technologies of um, the machine uh, and petroleum um, really transformed the ways in which logistical considerations started to dominate and not just, um, you know, they, I think logistical considerations have always been really crucial in warfare, like Lale was already suggesting, but they became kind of linchpin in terms of whether campaigns could continue um, because of this heavy reliance on petroleum and the really complicated, you know, transportation forms um, that were required in order to actually supply warfare. So there's that moment, um, really, which is World War One. I. I think there's another really crucial moment during World War Two and immediately afterwards, which is also very much a kind of military and imperial moment, which has to do with the increasing standardization of some of the technologies associated with logistics, but also the kinds of management forms that were emerging, for instance, in post-war post-World War II Japan, um, the military contracting that was happening in Southeast Asia. Um, these were all really crucial um, in terms of increasing standardization of logistical practices in, in the context of, of war. And especially, um, I would probably flag the standardization of the shipping container, which happened both through these kinds of contracting, but also specifically through uh, the Vietnam War. Uh, and um, once that that kind of standardization started to take place, there was the kind of possibility for really building what what we think of now and I think what is highly celebrated in business management, highly critiqued both in its practice but also its vision, which is these kinds of system-like operations, these kinds of in very entangled networks of circulation that are really predicated on smoothness and speed. Um, which I think also sets the stage for this question of disruption. So all that's to say that before we even get anything like a revolution in logistics, logistics is already an incredibly important and powerful military and imperial form um, that only, I think, takes increasing importance and starts to change in some crucial ways as logistics becomes much more 
centered in the world of corporate trade in the post, like the early 1960s? Um, one of the things that I'm particularly interested in, in, in my own work, is um, a kind of an excavation of the role of militaries alongside capital accumulation in their histories. And I originally started off by thinking of the domain of military logistics and the domain of capital accumulation and what requires in terms of inputs, um, fuel, outputs, the movement of goods, etc., as, as being somewhat separate domains. But when I'm looking now at some of the ports that have been developed on the um, Arabian Peninsula, I'm finding that it's um, almost impossible to be able to extricate uh, the military element from the capital accumulation element. Mm -hmm. And that partially has to do with the ways in which uh, petroleum and petroleum production ends up being so incredibly central to the transformation of the Arabian Peninsula. And of course, the companies that were profoundly involved in the development of petroleum in those places, um, Aramco, the company that eventually became BP, started off being Anglo-Iranian, Anglo-Persian oil company. Whether or not they were part of, they were owned by the government, as BP was, it was 51% uh, of its shares was owned by the British government until Thatcher privatized it, or not, which was the case of uh, ostensibly of Aramco, nevertheless, the entire infrastructure established around these corporations was one which had incorporated into it, inextricably woven into it, the security element, and, and the security element was the respective militaries um, of Britain and the US being completely and totally invested in the protection of these corporations. Now, what that meant of course, was then that you needed to have, in order for this, um, petroleum corporations to work, you needed to be able to import goods for drilling, you needed to import uh, materials needed for the establishment of drilling camps and oil fields and refineries, um, and you needed to secure the, the perimeters on these places. And so what you ended up having was uh, the development of cargo ports. Uh, so all companies uh, on the Arabian Peninsula were some of the first companies involved in the development of the, the kind of modern cargo ports that we would recognize uh, visually um, today or functionally today. And to me, that's actually really interesting because in some senses, it, it's setting about the way that logistical networks are buried perhaps in a very invisible sort of way in all sorts of other ostensibly unrelated fields of activity, whether political, economic or security. Um, and in all of these instances, these logistical networks are considered to be such important arteries of trade that, uh, that, that the security of them is guaranteed not through private security, although that is, of course, a, a factor in it as well, but, but through the mobilization of vast state coercive apparatuses, militaries or whatnot, police force, external police forces, maritime police forces. And so to me, that, that shows the irrevocable inextricability of all sorts of kinds of corporations, militaries, uh, and various other state and non-state actors in ways that they cannot be separated into public or private or into military and economic or into political or economic is, is actually one of the things that, logistic, that logistical networks tend to really, really uh, make visible. Yeah, I think that's absolutely, you know, how Lale is describing how deeply entangled, I mean, even entangled suggests that they're separate to begin with in some way and then brought together, which is not the case. And I think Lale's example and the, the work sh that you're doing around the petroleum um, industry and, and extraction is, is, is so crucial. I mean, I think this, going back to the question of why we got involved in this kind of work, 
I think this is another reason for me, which is that I think so many conversations um, about either war or or tr the economy, a political economy, tend to be sort of separate from each other, and and there's a sense that there's a newness to things like the privatization of warfare or the militarization of trade. And I think as as Lali's just suggested, with these beautiful hints of the projects to come, doing meaningful work on imperial histories. Um, especially their materialities, like you, you cannot separate in, in those ways. So this, the kind of messiness of categories as well as the kind of messiness of space is certainly at the center of my interest here. So thanks for that, Lali. So the messiness that you both talk about is fascinating. And it reminds me that one of the things that we might juxtapose the way that both of you are reading logistics is with the business and corporate approach to logistics, which as Deb precisely said, is predicated on this kind of image or fantasy even of smoothness and speed and uninterrupted flow. And in both your work, you're, you're insisting instead that not only is logistics um, irrevocably sort of uh, entangled in these ways, but so too do the imperial and military aspects or imperial and military roots reveal um, the fundamental way in which uh, logistics is founded on uneven distribution and um, on deep inequalities uh, between who is mobile and who isn't, what is mobile and what isn't, and who gets to govern the flows of goods and things. So I'm wondering if you can both talk a little bit about the kinds of forms of inequality or violence that you see embedded within the logistics chain, and whether thinking about logistics and the global supply chain um, reveals certain things to us about the unevenness of um, imperialism in ways that other approaches might not have before. I mean, that's that's an incredibly complex question. And, and in some ways, Deb has actually answered a lot of this in her amazing book, but because of the ways in which she focuses on the work of labor as absolutely crucial to the working of this, but also as an absolutely crucial way of disrupting the violences of these uh, logistical networks. Um, she also has, she, she also writes about pirates, and I think that that also points to something geopolitical and not simply around sort of domestic social relations. One of the things that has been really striking to me has been, as, as I've been looking at the specific projects that I've been looking at, is the ways in which it is impossible to extricate the Arabian Peninsula from the transformations that are happening around it and further afield. So one of the things that people recognize and often comment on in, in terms of the uh, socioeconomic relations in the Arabian Peninsula is uh, the prevalence of non-citizens who essentially work as laborers who can be very easily deported from the Arabian Peninsula. That they are also present um, in the ports um, and functioning uh, extensively within the logistical networks as truck drivers, as, um, as crane operators, as people who work on, on the port, actually as, as the dockers and Steve Doors. And, and one of the things that is historically interesting is actually transformations that also lead to China being the factory of the world. So you, you see shifts in the ways in which the world is changing in the 1970s and 80s. And as first Japan and then China become factories of the world, you see the transformations in local economies where mass production in East Asia uh, transformation of economies, for example, in India and in Bangladesh and in Pakistan, where small businesses are going under because the kind of goods that they're producing are being displaced by Chinese goods. Uh, and the people who used to have these kinds of artisanal businesses end up migrating first to larger cities within their own respective countries and later to Arab countries to work. 
So the same kinds of processes that, that lead to an increased uh, demand for goods that are produced in China and therefore an increased demand for the movement of raw commodities to China and then the uh, produced goods, products, cargo out of China elsewhere is also the same exact processes that are essentially appropriating in Asia and transforming them into a proletariat, into a wage laboring class that ends up having to migrate in order to find work. So that is one of the, the, the huge transformative movements. The second enormously important transformative uh, movement that causes these kinds of logistical networks to emerge, but also points to the extraordinary inequalities within them, uh, are of course wars. And one of the things that I've been focusing is how the creation of the state of Israel and the expropriation of hundreds of thousands of Palestinians, when these Palestinian refugees are leaving, many of them actually end up in the Arabian Peninsula. And exactly in the period where you see the construction of transport infrastructures in that country. So when you look at some of the archival documents or reports coming out of Aramco, you see spikes in the number of refugees that are uh, now working on railroad projects or on construction of harbors or as welders. They, they were quite skilled workers. So as welders uh, working on uh, the establishment of uh, the making of cranes or whatever. And so you, you've got this other process of expropriation and enclosure, uh, which is a settler colonial project of Israel, leading to uh, the, the creation of a mass of workers uh, moving to the Arabian Peninsula. So you've got these kinds of movements which are really global transformations, which are enforcing a certain set of racialized labor hierarchies uh, that are most visible precisely in these um, logistical spaces, because these logistical spaces also demand the whole gamut of skills from the manager and, and of course hierarchies from the white expatriate managers from northwest Europe to uh, brown clerical workers to migrant workers who are coming often from rural areas elsewhere in south asia and these kinds of global racialized labor hierarchies and inequalities tend to be incredibly visible if one manages to get behind the security behind the barbed wire and into the warehouses and logistical spaces of uh, the arabian peninsula i'm sure some of this can be elsewhere in the world as well um, but that was my own very kind of empirically grounded sense of the way in which these hierarchies and violences work within the logistical uh, supply chains. What about you, Deb? What do you think? Well, I mean, I, that's I, I think that's an amazing, uh, amazing uh, way to weigh into it. Um, I, I mean, I, in some senses, I would just sort of um, come back to where Charmaine uh, was starting us with this question of the imagined ways that um, logistical kinds of networks operate. The, or at least the kind of corporate imaginary and corporate fantasy of these spaces. And I mean, this is one that works very well with a consumer kind of approach or engagement or lens on the processes too, where people want to be able to click and order and get their stuff um, and, and what happens between their, their online order and, and um, wherever the things are coming from is sort of beyond their concern. Um, or beyond um, the visibility anyways. Um, and I think, you know, when Charmaine, when you were talking with Charmaine about her work and the kind of invisibility of the social and the human in all of the, uh, these spaces and that Charmaine's work is doing so much to, to make uh, those, that social um, visible and, uh, and discernible, I, I think that's really crucial here. I mean, I think we have a growing sense. I think there's a growing sense of the cost of 
in some ways globalization that's been on the agenda for uh, movements for some time, um, uh, movements of many different kinds, right? But I think part of what we're we're focused specifically on in this question of this conversation about logistics is is what does it mean when it takes on this kind of networked form? So you know, people are aware that Walmart relies on low wages, or that outsourcing relies on exploitation, or that war is very tied, you know, wars in the Middle East are very tied to questions of imperialism and extraction. But the ways in which the politics of logistics as a kind of circulatory system are operating, I think, are probably at moments very clear to people, workers, um, indigenous communities, uh, and others who, who are directly impacted by these networks and infrastructures, but um, I think in some ways they're becoming more and more visible. Maybe that's a, a very present disadvantage point, but I do think that um, as these, as the logistical networks themselves become um, more visible, there is a sense of their kind of politicization, and and so the work of so many groups in the present in terms of um, connecting the, the the complicated geographies, because I think at the core of of logistics is these complicated networks that make it that have historically made it much easier to keep people and 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 movements very separate, um, but which are reaching across space, tracking those those networks increasingly in the present. So, I mean, one of the examples that uh, that surfaced in some of my research is just the ways in which, um, as Lali pointed out, this question of piracy, which is certainly not a new question, and pirates have this very long and complicated relationship to empire and an internet and the whole foundations of international law. But, you know, you have the American Coast Guard uh, and the Canadian military and naval forces doing their, their violence in the Gulf of Aden with explicit kind of claims of protecting North American consumers and corporations. Um, and, um, you know, you think, well, what, you know, with regards to the Coast Guard, which I was initially quite surprised, like, since when is the Gulf of Aden the American coast, right? These kinds of questions of really complicated networks and having to think about relations across sometimes very big spaces. So the unevenness, I think, is is built right in. I think that's, as Lale has already kind of suggested, is is what makes logistical systems work. And so I guess part of what interests me in this, as we kind of wind towards the end of this, is, you know, to what extent can can logistics be repurposed or can a counter logistics be a meaningful enterprise when logistics is so pre- is so premised on this unevenness and on this violence? That's great, Deb. And you're taking me precisely to the place where I'm hoping uh, the last question that we can take up, um, which is precisely about whether logistics avails itself to a different kind of repurposing. And And alongside, I think, the myth or the fantasy of smoothness and speed, one of the things that you argue in your book, Deb, is that even as these sort of fantasies of standardization or these practices of standardization are occurring, logistics also is an incredibly vulnerable network that's full of friction, precisely because it connects um, spaces and things through a network that's that's much more reliant on uh, a global spread than it was before. so I'm wondering, Deb, you mentioned that in recent years we we may argue that we've re- we've witnessed a resurgence of the blockade as a tactic of disruption and resistance in left politics, and some of the 
you know, most prominent uh, examples I can think of are uh, anti-Zionist activists blocking the Israeli cargo ship company Zim from coming into ports on the West Coast as part of a boycott, divestment and sanctions strategy, or the freeway blockades of Black Lives Matter activists, or the interruption of pipeline constructions by indigenous peoples in Canada and the U.S. Um, and all of these, uh, all of these disruptive tactics share one thing in common. In fact, a number of these activists have said, you know, we do this in order to stop capital in its tracks. So I'm wondering if we can think about the ways that logistics is as much a vulnerable system as it is one that is predicated on standardization and smoothness, um, whether we can think about uh, what it might look like to to target the circulatory system, to repurpose it, to disrupt it? Um, and what would a counter-logistical movement in the way that Jasper Burns talks about it look like? So for me, these are kind of open questions. And I don't think that there's like, um, some of the debates seem to kind of suggest that we should have a yes or no perspective on whether a counter-logistics is possible. I mean, so the first thing I, I guess I, I always want to want to say is it really depends and context matters. Um, but also even more specifically that some of the most in important work, I think, that happens in the context of disruptions, and I mean disruptive events like occupations and blockades, um, is is not necessarily the, the part of, of the disruption that is the no or the, the interruption or the, the stopping of flows. That's all crucial to, to having impact, um, for sure. Uh, and that's usually the spoken goal of a kind of a disruptive occupation or blockade. But I think equally important to me, um, and I, this really comes out of my, my commitment and history of feminist politics and community organizing, is this, there are very specific kinds of relations of solidarity and coalition that can be formed in those moments. Um, that, that, you know, I think for anyone who's been part of an action uh, like a whether it's a, a strike and walking a picket line, or whether it's a kind of longer term longer term occupation, like currently is underway um, in late March, um, Black Lives Matter Toronto occupied the police headquarters here and has actually a logistics team that's very crucial in terms of feeding um, and nourishing um, folks on site, but also providing care services. You know, so for me, I guess one of the things that I think is so is so important is that when we think in very grounded ways about what a what an occupation or disruption is about, it's not just about that interruption, although that is crucial. And I think we've seen the power of that, um, especially in in these kind of key nodes, whether it's the West Coast ports, where you know a shutdown of an hour or two can can have enormous financial costs for the shipping companies and the the ports themselves. But the actual creative work the coalitional work and the solidarity work that can happen in terms of connecting up really different movements. So for instance, at the Black Lives Matter occupation in Toronto, there's uh, been a, a pretty constant full-time Indigenous presence at this blockade, at this occupation, uh, and the kinds of co conversations and coalition building that's happening on, on site between movements that are differently but both subject to state violence and racial state violence has been, I think, crucial. So I think, you know, the, the question of counter logistics is, is, is phenomenally important. I think part of what the power of a counter logistics that comes through things like disruption is precisely because these networks are so, so extended, 
Um, they're so dispersed that they are um, impossible to protect and they are incredibly vulnerable. So there is that kind of very kind of uh, immediate potential of disruption, disruption of both the material and, and capital flows. But equally to me is the ways in which um, the supply chain itself brings so many different constituencies together and different movements together by virtue of the fact that these imperial networks span so much time and space. I think um, Deb's answer is wonderful and it's really nice to be in a conversation with a feminist because I think there's something incredibly important about what Deb insisted on, which is the groundedness of the particular action and the context. Because um, I think uh, I completely agree with you that the coalition building that happens around these things is probably even more important than the disruption itself in some ways. Uh, because if we are thinking about a future oriented set of actions, those kinds of coalitions are very necessary, not just around the ports, but beyond them. But one of the things that I wanted to talk about was also to not necessarily only celebrate counter logistics on the basis of it being a disruptive technology or a disruptive tactic, because, of course, the content of why the disruption is happening is really important. And the reason I bring this up is because in the course of the recent archival work that I've been doing, I come into an instance of a disruption of a boycott by uh, dockers in New York of a ship, which is actually, looking back at it, is profoundly retrograde. Charmaine, you mentioned the Zim blockade, Zim being the shipping company, the Israeli shipping company, which transports arms for police forces in the US, etc. And of course, it is an Israeli shipping company. And so there have been very interesting coalitions emerging in the West Coast of the US, refusing to, between workers and uh, pro-Palestinian actors, activists and um, and also actually in some instances uh, Black Lives Matters activists around or or the proto movements of the Black Lives Matters I was working on uh, trying to blockade Zim. Now there's a kind of a mirror image of this particular movement hanging in the 1960s in New York where the longshoremen's the ILU uh, refused to unload Egyptian ships because they felt that Egyptian ships were not necessary. Well, Egypt was seen as an enemy of Israel. Now, this is happening in 1960. The last time that anybody's attacked anybody else, it has been the state of Israel, along with the British and the French, attacking Egypt. And yet, here, four years later, in 1960, what you've got are the longshoremen of New York ostensibly engaging in radical action, but what they're doing is they're blockading the ships of an anti-colonial nationalist regime um, in favor of the a client of European states, a settler colonial state in the in the region. And so there's it's I think it's really to think of some of these counter-logistics tactics as profoundly fundamentally important, but to also think about the content of them and the context in which they're used and to not simply celebrate the tactic as something that, that can be used because frankly it can also be used for extremely imperialist profoundly racializing profoundly unequal retrograde actions and I think this was it, it was a quite a salutary reminder that sometimes when we celebrate particular tactics as being wonderfully good and useful that we should also think about who's using them and to what end and I think that I love the fact that um, Deb insists on that contextualization and on that grounding rather 
than a kind of an abstract celebration of the tactic on its own. Um, so, so I thought that that being a bit of a cynic, I think I should probably bring in also this old story of the 1960s, um, which is which I'm hoping to write about um, on a blog post soon. Um, so, so I thought that to, I thought to bring it up. Absolutely. I think that's um, so crucial to remind us of, you know, the, to keep that really central in our minds. The, and I think even if we talk about logistics itself, we could say the same thing, right? That it has this imperial, military, corporate, long history, but at its core, you know, there's a way in which what, what those bodies, um, those war machine bodies are doing when they're coordinating and managing these forms of circulation and provisioning, in a sense, is basically social reproduction, right? It's feeding and housing and, you know, it's sustaining life. And in fact, the U.S. military has kind of changed the, the, the branding of its logistics bodies to sustainment, um, sustenance, right? Like this is in some ways already a complicated question before we even get to counter logistics. And so it's the, for me, the requires um, absolutely thinking very carefully about context uh, and, and violence and power in how we assess any of these questions, including logistics itself. That's great. I mean, I think one of the things you're both uh, reminding us of is that material movement or the material blockade or the tactic in itself does not uh, in any way predetermine a certain kind of politics. But we need to both think about uh, what these systems both make available for us, but also um, what it would mean to struggle against the social forms that underpin them, the social and political forms that underpin them. So I think that's all the time that we have today. So we have to end it here. But as always, we hope that this podcast is just the beginning of future conversations. So listeners, if you have any comments, please do leave your thoughts and comments below the line. And thank you so much to Deborah Cohen and Lale Khalili for sharing their thoughts with us. And we look forward to seeing you the next time on The Dissonance of Things.